Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And here we go. And this is Thursday, November 29th, 2018. Tomorrow is the last day of November. And for those of you that the date snuck up on you, uh, you've got a lot of company. I can't believe we're at the end of November and, and beginning December already of 2018. Joining me tonight in a few moments will be William Padalo, known to most as Bill Padalo. Tonight, we're again talking about what to look for and where the banks can't hide. In particular, we're going to focus tonight on the use of the word investor. It could mean a lot of things, obviously. And the banks use the word to get around just about everything. But in reality, with respect to your loan or your client's loan, in reality, there is rarely anyone anywhere at any time that could be called an investor in your loan. That is so counterintuitive that it sounds like conspiracy theory. I know. I get it. That's why they did it. That's what enabled the banks to step in and step out of their roles as intermediaries between principal parties, which would have been the investors and the homeowners seeking loans and step out of their role as intermediaries and essentially step into the role of pretending they are an owner of the debt when, in fact, they are not. But they start with creating the appearance of owning the debt by using the name of a so-called trust that is not used for anything other than two things. The first thing is the issuance of worthless certificates in the name of the trust, which is really a fictitious name for the underwriter to collect money. It's a Ponzi scheme. The second place where they use the trust name is in foreclosures. Other than that, it's never used anywhere. Yes, they upload their documents to the SEC. No, they don't elect 
the uh, the remit protection in the Internal Revenue Code because there is no trust. Nothing has been entrusted to them. So when you hear about investors and you think about, well, they own a share of the trust and the trust owns the debts, the, the deed of trust, the, the mortgage, the note. No, that's not what happened. And it isn't true. And it will never be true in the current infrastructure. All that, frankly, I contributed to some of the erroneous thinking back when I first started writing on this in 2006 uh, because I thought that securitization did exist. Remember this, though. Look back. You'll see it yourself in whatever state you're in. Back in the early 2000s and even in 2006, 7, and sometimes 8, they were suing. It was the servicer who was suing for foreclosure. It was the servicer. And when people were complaining that the servicer is not the real party in interest, that it's some kind of trust, a remit trust, the answer was there is no trust involved with this loan, which, as it turns out, ironically, was a true statement. They were using a trust name, but not an actual trust. So in our world of foreclosure defense, they tell us that services go to investors to get permission to modify or settle. No, they don't. It's not true. They have no place to go. They certainly don't go to the purchasers of, of the certificates because the purchasers of the certificates, sometimes called mortgage bonds, is just a promise to pay in the name of the trust, which the trust name was used by the underwriter. So in a way, it's a promise to pay from the underwriter. So when they go to supposedly get permission to settle or modify or whatever, they're not going. What they're doing is something like what I used to do when I was negotiating settlements for my clients, which is waiting a period of time so that people calm down and then telling them, you know, here are the terms that have been negotiated and what changes do you want. They don't do that. Whether it's certificate holders, whether it's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or anything or anyone else, they don't go to anyone who could be called an investor. The very word investor implies that there was an investment of money, which is true for the people who bought the certificates, but they didn't invest any money into your loan. They don't own your debt, and they've waived any rights to your debt, to your note, to your mortgage. The investors have nothing to do with it. And Bill's going to talk about a case where an investor attempted to sue and was repulsed by a motion to dismiss, basically a judge agreeing with the fact that the investor has no standing to sue 
on the terms or provisions of the so-called trust instruments. Investors could also mean beneficiaries under the PSA trust instrument, only it's not. They, there are no beneficiaries under the, the so-called trust instrument, and there is no trust. And the trust, the, 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 the so-called trustee is, is just a trustee in name only of a name only, which is they, they create a name of a trust. It implies that the people who bought the certificates issued in the name of the trust are beneficiaries of the trust, but they are not beneficiaries. They have no right, and they've expressly waived the right, to even inquire as to the trust assets, much less some kind of conditional right to own the trust assets in the event that the underwriter stops paying them. They have no such right, and neither does the trust, because the trust doesn't exist. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of you, because of your donations to the Living Lies blog And we need listeners like you to support us. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230 or 202-838-6345. The last four digits are my name, N-E-I-L, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show is value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows occur without payment or any other support from any outside agency, if that has value for you, then help chip in. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing it for me, too, because I enjoy it. But the intention is to give value to you. So chip in a little. Give value to us so that we can keep doing this and keep doing it better. So now, for the rest of the story, welcome Bill Padalo. Hi, Neil. Good to be here, and thanks for having me on. So, yeah, I wanted to send you uh, another case as I'm doing research on, uh, well, what I do all the day, every day is research, but um, anyhow, this case of the investors going after U.S. Bank, um, where the court comes out and, and simply says that you're not a party to the PSA, and you don't have any direct or uh, indirect legal recourse against the mortgages that underline these certificates that you own. And it's, um, you know, we've got a lot of case law out there, and I've written about the, the big one out of Washington State, the Cashmere case, where they came and analyzed uh, the rights of certificate holders and made it very clear, again, uh, no recourse against the homeowners, uh, against the, the security instruments underlying the transaction. So, uh, so I, you know, I posed this question, you know, to you in, in, in our exchanges and emails, and I said, well, listen, uh, clearly, you know, in, in our world, in my world of uh, uh, investigating these cases, I'm always up in the, you know, with homeowners in a perpetual fight against a ghost because. The 
entities that claim on paper to exist, as you have said quite eloquently here in this show already, that the trusts don't exist. They're simply uh, in name only. They're used as kind of straw entities to um, accomplish the end goal of uh, getting the foreclosure judgments or whatnot. But um, uh, so I pose the million-dollar question. So, so number one, if these certificate holders or these so-called investors are deemed not to be beneficiaries, there, there, there can be no trust without beneficiaries, period. So I think that kind of hits the nail right on the head of what you're saying. There can't be a trust if you have no beneficiaries to the trust. Um, but my, I guess the million-dollar question that I posed to you was, look, if the parties who really put up the money uh, or who you know, either funded the loan or purchased the, the, under, the alleged underlying assets – if those parties have no recourse against the security instruments, then who does? And and I think I, you know you should explain a little bit about you know because I I was thinking the same I kind of had my own answer to this and you answered it quite well prior to coming on the show here is that there isn't anybody uh, who stands in the shoes of the original beneficiary or mortgagee on the security instruments and there is no one. Um, who could step forward and enforce the remedies of foreclosure um, other than the person who put up the money? And it's already been deemed that they're not entitled to do so. So what, what are we left with there, Neil? I mean, who who's entitled to enforce? I think the real answer to this, when we're done with the conflict between public policy, which is driven by terror, that if they don't, support the banks, the whole financial system will crash, which is not true. Um, between the conflict between that public policy, which permeates all the courts and all of law enforcement, public policy versus the rule of law. We have adequate laws to take care of this. And the, the answer really is ultimately courts are supposed to be a place of justice and equity. So what would be just and equitable? It's obvious if you take a step back. The Right now, none of the paperwork on the loans, with very few exceptions, none of the paperwork is legally enforceable. That's not to say that it isn't legally enforced, because as we all know, most of the courts find a way. They make up excuses. So, so what's going on and what should go on? Well, there's two doctrines which you see used in many cases um uh, involving fraud, etc., but most definitely where you see these kinds of cases being really explored in legal terms are in tax court. And in tax court, you have something called the step transaction doctrine and the single transaction doctrine, and they both boil down to this. 
I'm oversimplifying, but do you have two entities without one of which none of the complex transactions that are supposed to have occurred would have occurred. So in other words, take the investors out, would you still have had the loans? No. Take the borrowers out, would the investors have made an investment? No. So the two real parties are are the investors who thought they were getting something and the borrowers who thought they were borrowing money and they thought they were putting up their house as collateral, but they were lured into signing documents in favor of people who had no right under law to even correspond with them about the debt, much less collect, enforce, or foreclose. But there's a remedy in the courts for this. And that's where the investors, and what the investor probably should have done or maybe will do, is to invoke a constructive trust by asking for a declaratory, injunctive, and supplemental relief. Uh, the declaration would be that uh, as a matter of, of law uh, and equity, they're going to be given grants of ownership over the debt note and mortgage, even though the documents don't mention them anywhere. And in addition to that, they're going to be told how much they can collect because in equity you're going to distribute the risk and the loss amongst all those who were involved in it. So that means the investors take a hit. It means the intermediaries take a hit. It means the borrowers take a hit. And and so on, the mortgage brokers, etc. So some amount of money is going to be deemed to be owed on this debt, even though the intermediaries made, in some cases, 40 or 50 times the amount of the loan. And the court is going to make a, the court would make a decision on that. And so you would now have, you've eliminated the the existing servicers unless they're rehired, uh, which I doubt the investors would do once they realized all of the ways that they were uh, cheated. But perhaps part of the equitable uh, ruling of the court would be that the servicers must do this, that, and the other thing. So maybe they'll still be involved. And that the borrower is going to be a borrower and the terms of the repayment to 
the now constructive owners of the debt, note, and mortgage, the payment would be an amount of, of, in principle set by the court on terms of repayment that are reasonable and close to the terms of repayment that was set forth on the note. Now, this is going to take a very complex litigation that only institutional investors and the, the banks, etc., cetera, uh, will, would hash out. Ultimately, this is what's going to happen, whether it's done in court, which is where it belongs, or if there are fixes done legislatively where they try to fix everything uh, by passing laws. I think the legislative solution is terrible. This is not like the Murphy Act in Florida where you had a specific problem that could be cured by uh, passing a law that says, okay, we know the title is all screwed up, but as of now, we're declaring title to be this way, and unless somebody brings suit in the next 90 days, that's the way it's going to be forever. Um, that kind of uh, solution from the legislature is not well suited for the complexity of what's going on here. And you've got competing claims of identity theft by the banks using the, the signature and name and financial reputation of the borrowers, using the cash of investors in ways that the investors had no idea was going to happen. They thought they were putting their money into a trust, which would then be buying existing and mature loans. But that's not what happened. Most of the money, I mean, there were purchases of loans, but most of the money went to originate loans. And ultimately, almost all of it did because there was so much pressure to refinance that the, the, the loans uh, uh, were all basically funded under this farce or fraudulent scheme. So, But as it stands now, to answer your question, Bill, I'm of the very firm opinion, um, having researched this and being very well versed in property law, contract law, etc. I'm of the opinion that the paperwork as it stands now is worthless and probably will always be worthless until it is amended or modified to reflect a real creditor and a real debtor. So well, I, I absolutely yeah. agree that the paperwork is worthless. And I just wanted to add just a couple of quick examples of what I'm seeing, you know, in cases where we drill down on this, whether it's through depositions, discovery, or whatnot. 
and and we get really amazing admissions. I mean, it's all right there. It's no deep dark secret anymore. I mean, even and and, and these two examples I'm going to give. Obviously, I can't talk about the specifics, unfortunately. So I'm going to use kind of generic terms. But uh, but one bank witness on a 30b6 deposition, which I was a, a, a part of and took part in helping uh, conduct the deposition with the attorneys, uh, they come in. Their position is we own this loan. And then when the question is posed upon that witness, um, all right, well, uh, it, let's just say that this house is um, uh, a judgment's entered or whatnot, and you proceed to say, uh, sell the house and liquidate the, uh, the property. Who's entitled to the, the, the proceeds of the sale? I don't know. And witness says that we own the loan, but I don't know who's entitled to the proceeds, number one. But I have a real... Uh, a brazen one that that came uh, to my attention, and I, I wish I could talk about it. And I think we will probably in the, in the not too distant future. But anyhow, uh, it's a case where Bank A is being sued by the homeowner uh, for fraudulent, uh, wrongful foreclosure, all kinds of different claims. And Bank A comes in and says, "Listen," uh, tells the court, "We don't have any vested interest in this property. We assigned it to a trust." We transferred the servicing rights to this loan to another party, and we're out of the equation. We have no interest whatsoever in this thing, and you know, we need to be kicked loose. So, uh, lo and behold, the court sides with Bank A, and they're, they're kicked loose. The judgment's entered. And uh, the property then goes on to the market by the real estate agent, and, the, and then in the listing of the property it says, no employees of Bank A are allowed to bid on this property or to purchase the property. So the homeowner, disguised as a potential buyer, contacts the real estate agent and says, hey, uh, my wife is thinking uh, of applying for a job with Bank A, and we're, we're interested in this property. Can we not make an offer? Lo and behold, the information comes back and says, well, Bank A repossessed this property. Bank A owns it, and Bank A has instructed us that we, cannot, we have to fill out a form to ensure that Bank A employees are not buying the house. So you have these brazen lies and everything up and down the ladder as we see in most of these cases but here you have a case where they've come in and swore to the court we don't own it and behind the scenes what are they doing they're liquidating it and profiting it and keeping it for themselves uh even though the judgment is given in a bogus trust name you know uh, just following up on that charles Kappa down in san diego was uh was banging on me 10 years ago that I should be paying closer attention to the foreclosure sale than than the initiation of the foreclosure itself. And he was right, because what we have seen now, and I think you're the one who uh, brought to my attention some of these, is that sometimes we're able to get a hold of the actual check when the property's liquidated, and it goes to the so-called named trustee, but they have no place to deposit it because they can't deposit it in their own account, and they don't have a trust account because there's no trust. So they send it physically to the subservicer that testified at uh, uh, or signed affidavits or what have you, and in turn, they don't have any right to deposit the money because they're not a party to the foreclosure. And in turn, the money 
instead of going to the trust or the investors who never see a penny of any of these foreclosure sales, the money went, in one case, from Boney to, I think, SPS to uh, Chase. And Chase deposited it because it was the entity that was an intermediary and claimed ownership rights, even though they had none. So these are lessons that we need to learn, and the big lesson is don't assume you know anything because the probability is you're basing it on incorrect information and faulty knowledge. And before we go off the air, I just want to say, for those of you who are new to the show, Bill is a premier Bill Padlow is a premier private investigator who's biting down hard on the foreclosure fraud and mortgage farce, as you already heard. He does a lot of work for homeowners in distress, and he does a lot of good, including pointing out cases that I either missed or forgot, like the one on U.S. Bank that we mentioned today. So if you need help, Bill's one of the people who can help you. His last name is spelled P-A-A-T-A-L-O. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Neil. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.